All right, good morning. We want to welcome you out to LifePoint Church. You can make your way to 1 John. We're going to be in the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. So 1 John, chapter 2, and chapter 3. While you're making your way there, I see a lot of parents in the room. And I am a parent of three children as well. I have Brooke, Braden, and Bryce, eight, six, and four. And um, I can think back to when I first discovered that we were expecting. And it's a, it's a game changer, isn't it? For those of you that are in the midst of it, especially, you realize, yeah, it is a total life changer. It changes your schedule, it changes your sleep, it changes all kinds of things. And, and when you first found out that you're pregnant or that your spouse is expecting, um, you begin thinking a lot of things. You're like, okay, what do we need to do to get ready? And of course, with childbirth, you know that you've got approximately nine months, right, to prepare. And for most families anymore, um, it's fairly typical to go in and uh, at the appropriate age, you can find out what the gender of your child is. Jennifer and I decided with each of our children that we were not going to find out. We had the ultrasounds and all those kind of things, but we never had the, the text tell us whether it was going to be a male or a female because we wanted to be surprised. So in preparation for our children's birth, we kind of had to do the old, well, let's uh, get the nursery ready. Let's uh, go with a nice green color that kind of goes either way um, because we didn't know the whether Brooke was going to be a boy or girl. So there was a lot of excitement, especially when Jen went into labor. And uh, even the nurses and so forth, they're kind of like, oh, is it going to be a boy? Is it going to be a girl? And childbirth, it's one of those things that's, uh, it's just interesting, right? I was in the room for all three of my children being born. It is a weird, cool, awesome, strange experience all kind of wrapped up in, in one package of God-giving life and uh, really changing the lives of, of parents for the good, ultimately. It's for the good, right? Sometimes we have to remind ourselves that in the midst of everything. So this morning, as we look at our text, there's going to be some parallels to, to a couple things that uh, hopefully segue with what I just mentioned. The idea of birth and the fact that spiritually we have to be born again in order to be a child of God. Also, we find that this passage is going to talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ and how we need to be ready how we need to be waiting and how that should change our actions and our mindset and how we should be preparing for the second coming, for his appearing when he chooses to come. So let's look at our passage um, again, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 28 and go through 3, 3. John writes and says this, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So just a, a little rehash to, to kind of catch you up with where we are. John is writing this letter. And again, I would say the theme verse is in chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And there were false teachers, antichrists, people that mixed truth with heresy. And he's writing this letter so that people that believed in Jesus, that had believed the doctrine that the apostles had been teaching, the gospel, that salvation was by faith alone in Jesus Christ, for those people, they could know that they had eternal life. And if you are a child of God, there is going to be different things that are going to be true. You're going to have right doctrine. And that right doctrine is also going to influence your choices and how you act and how you behave. So keep that in mind that that's the big picture of what John is tackling of. He's writing to believers to protect them from error, to battle heresies, and also so that they can have confidence and not have to wonder, oh man, someday I'm going to die. I just hope, I just hope that maybe I'll get to be with God. No, he, he's writing this so that you can have confidence that you are in Christ and that you will be in his presence forever and ever for all of eternity. So again, he addresses this passage and Phil closed with verse 28, but it kind of also, it closes and it kind of opens. So let's look at that again. Little children. And again, he's, he, he's addressing this, his audience in a very familial, caring, affectionate kind of term. A way that a father would address his kids. You know, sometimes I holler down the stairs or even um, in the room where my kids are playing, I'm just like, mansicle kiddos, children, my loved ones. No, I don't usually say it like that, but, you know, just a way that you address your kids. And it's like he's saying that. And he's giving them instructions. He says, abide in him. So when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from at his coming. So I remember back to my childhood. I don't remember how old I was, but I grew up in a, a small little house in Newton, Kansas. And for whatever reason, my, my bedroom is a fairly small bedroom, but we had an extra refrigerator that was in my room. Weird, yeah. Um, but I remember it was, a, it was a hideous looking refrigerator. It was like a weird orangish tannish color. And I remember as a little kid, I would like get on my dresser and I'd climb up on top of this uh, refrigerator and I would jump onto my bed. And apparently, you know, I'd been doing this for a while and it brought joy to me, apparently. And uh, I remember I had a great grandpa that came for a little visit and he walked in pretty much like right as I'm ready to jump. And I remember like, I probably did continue to jump and I remember just thinking, oh wow, I just got caught. And now I'm like kind of shrinking away, kind of like, oh man, is great grandpa gonna tell my parents? 
Yes, yes he was. He was gonna tell my parents, right? So I didn't have confidence because I was doing something that while my parents may have never explicitly said, Brent, do not jump off the top of your refrigerator on top of your bed, I knew that that wasn't an action that I should have been doing. So he tells them, hey, you can have confidence when Jesus comes with right action. And not right action to get to God, but right action because you've already met God. He says, abide in him. Now, keep a finger here in 1 John. Let's go back to the Gospel of John for a minute. This isn't going to be the first time or last time that we'll go there. But John chapter 15, he's writing in verse 4, John 15 verse 4, he talks about this principle of abiding. He says this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the first kind of principle, it's an action step. It's, uh, hey, abide in me. And if you do that, you can have confidence when Christ will return. And again, this isn't a, a step of, hey, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. It's, it's basically, hey, come to the end of yourself and rest in God. That's where the strength, that's where the power, um, the illustration is that of the vine. You know, the branches have to be plugged into uh, the, the roots and the stems and the trunk and all those kind of things in order to get the nutrients that it needs to flourish and to bear forth fruit. Okay, so we need to abide in him. Look at the next part. It says in verse 29, If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. This word righteous. And again, another, another fruit, another evidence that a person is in Christ is they're abiding and they're practicing righteousness. You know, if, as a child of God, if you have ever surrendered and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when God looks down at you, he doesn't see you as the sinner that you are, but he sees you through the lens of the forgiven sinner that you are. He sees you through the righteousness of Jesus. So in a sense, he's taken your sin away, he's taken those dirty rags off of you, and he's clothed you with his own righteousness. So then the challenge for us as believers is, hey, in the sight of God, now as his child, because I've believed in him, I'm righteous. And yet we still have the sin nature. And the battle is, how do I live out the righteous position that I am? Because practically, I still mess up and I still sin and I still struggle with that. As a child of God, I want to follow him and at times I don't and there's this inward struggle that we wrestle with. But ultimately, if you're in Christ, a pattern of your lifestyle will be you will live righteously. You will practice righteousness if you've been born of him.
And this kind of goes back to the, the passage where Nicodemus, that Phil read, John chapter 3, where Nicodemus comes in and Jesus is asking him questions. Hey, you need to be born again. It's like, what? How can I be born again? How in the world can, a, can I, as an adult male, go back into my mother's womb? And he's confused, he's perplexed, and Jesus makes it clear, hey, I'm not talking about another physical birth. That's, that's already happened. It's not going to happen again for you. You need a spiritual birth. And as he continues on talking to Nicodemus, he tells him probably the most famous verse that we have in all of our Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ will not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, believe. It's believing in Jesus Christ that you can be born of him. And it kind of continues on um, in 3... 3.1, where it says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And in our world today, I think uh, it is in vogue for people to say, Hey, you're a child of God, I'm a child of God, we're all, we're all just children of God. That is not what the Bible teaches. We are all created in the image of God. God has loved us all extravagantly. But unless you have been born again, you are not a child of God. You are not born into his family. And again, in John 3, 18, Phil read that verse as well. It says that basically our spiritual default is to be lost. It says, if you do not believe, if you have not been born again, if you want to phrase it that way, then the default is the fact that you are under condemnation because you are a sinner. That is our default state. It's not as a child of God. We must be born again, and that is only by believing in Jesus. If you would go ahead and take a, take a peek at 1 John again, for just a, or excuse me, in the Gospel of John again. John chapter 1. Tells us a little bit more, okay, this children of God idea. John chapter 1, in verse 12, says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And again, this goes right along with all the teachings of the Bible, the fact that, hey, you're never going to clean yourself up good enough. You're never going to follow a 10-step program perfectly enough to become a child of God. It is by believing. It is receiving a free gift. That's what grace is. It is a free gift, nothing that you can work for or ever merit. It is God's free gift that you must simply receive. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Notice the rest of that verse. It says, The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. And again, as a child of God, you should probably experience this, again, kind of tug of war, not just inwardly as you have the Spirit of God living within you and you also struggle with your own fleshly desires still, but you should also have this tension of, hey, 
I'm a child of God, and my citizenship is in his kingdom. And yet I'm in this earthly kingdom. And you've got this tension where you love God and, and you love people. You want to see as many people be in God's kingdom as possible. Uh, and you wrestle with the fact that the world, as a child of God, really shouldn't embrace who you are. Just as it didn't embrace who Jesus was. And again, in John chapter 1, let me turn back there for just a second. The verse is right before I read. John chapter 1. Verse 10, it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. So again, there, there is this tension that, hey, just as the world as a whole rejected Jesus, if you are a child of God and if you're living out and you're abiding in Him and you've been born of Him and you're purifying yourself, some of these things that we're about to get to, then the world will probably reject you. You should have worldviews and thoughts that the world does not like. If the world puts its stamp of approval on your worldview, that's probably an indicator that you're not a child of God. There are things that you should be believing because the Bible says it that is not popular with the world. There are things like even, hey, we're not all children of God. That's not popular. That's not inclusive. But yet Jesus said things that were very exclusive. Remember John 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. So we should have attention with the world, realizing that, yes, we're here. God has left us here to share his love and with other people. But uh, we're never going to be embraced by the world if we're believing how the Bible informs us to believe. In verse 2, it says, Beloved, again, another affectionate term, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And this kind of goes back to verse 28. This idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And this gets into an area uh, that we call eschatology. Fancy word that basically talks about prophecy and the end times. And it's one of those areas that you can have a lot of different believers that, that have different viewpoints on that. I was raised in a, in a way that is, hey, the rapture is going to happen. Um, you're going to have the millennial kingdom, all these kind of things. And rather than splitting hairs on that, you may have a particular view of how things are going to unfold. And the book of Revelation, other books in the Bible are, inf are informative. Keep in mind that regardless of what you think, the Bible is very clear that Jesus is coming back. If you want to squabble about the timing of it, that's fine. It's not a bad thing to you know, discuss these kind of things. But he is coming back. And we need to be ready. You know, that's one of the motivations that this passage and that others for his coming, it's like, hey, we need to be expectantly waiting and watching. 
and living a life that we can have confidence when he comes and not shrink away and like have a sheepish little look like I did when I jumped from the refrigerator onto my bed. And it says that when he appears, there's going to be a change. Um, a couple of verses that I'll, I'll read. 2 Timothy 4.8 says this. Actually, I'll read verse 4-7 because I like that one too. Paul is saying, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Over in Titus, Paul again is writing, and he says this in Titus 2, 11 through 14, which is kind of a parallel passage to this. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Again, this passage in Titus chapter 2, this passage in 1 John, it doesn't speak of someone who is just passively sitting around, twiddling their thumbs. It's talking about someone that is actively looking for the return of Jesus. And the return of Jesus and the love of God, the love of God that can make them a child of God, it is an active kind of thing that propels you and motivates you to produce, if you want to say it, to produce fruit, to produce good works. But it's not your own doing. It's the God who loves you that's living inside with the Spirit, and it's resting and abiding in Him. And it's choosing to say no to the flesh and yes to Jesus. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. Again, we're, we're not going to get into an extensive look, but you think back in the Old Testament system. God chose the Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, to be his chosen people. And do you remember the, the access to a relationship with God has always been by faith? But in the Old Testament, there were some very obvious action steps that they had to do to approach God. Do you remember the Old Testament system of, hey, if this happens, if this happens, if this happens, then you're unclean and you have to wait a certain amount of days and you have to go to the priest and you have to do all these things in order to be pure to enter into the presence. What a relief that we are living in a different age in which Jesus has already come and he has fulfilled all the Old Testament law and that we can simply purify ourselves in a sense by going directly to God. And it kind of goes back to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there is an activeness of the fact that, hey, you're a child of God. 
You've received the free gift of salvation and it's going to motivate and it's going to propel and it's going to move in you to take action to follow Jesus and to abide in him and to practice righteousness and to purify yourselves and to just to use the terminology that John is using in this passage. So in closing, I would ask basically two questions in application. Kind of with Jesus and his encounter with Nicodemus back in John chapter 3, this very religious man who was a teacher of religious things, he looked good on the outside. And yet in his interaction with Jesus, through all the right or through all the religiousness, you could tell he was just lost. He was confused. And yet later you see that Nicodemus was a believer later on in John. He believed he was born again. So my question simply is this, using the terminology that John used in John 3, that he references here, I would say, have you been born again? Again, not a physical rebirth. That'd be really weird. A spiritual birth. Has there been a time in your life in which you've simply said, yes, I am a sinner that falls short of the perfection and glory of God, and I deserve to be punished. I deserve to be separated forever from God, and yet He loves me. He loved me so much that I can become a child of God by believing and receiving His free gift. And that he actually gives me a spirit to live inside me, to change me from the inside out, so that I can produce fruit, and so that I can practice righteousness, and so I can purify myself with his power, to keep pure as he is pure. And then secondly, I would say as a matter of application, if the answer to the first question was yes, yes, I have been born again, I'm a believer, I am a child of God, and I know his love in an intimate, extravagant way as a father loves his child. I would ask you this, maybe just practically, when was the last time that you considered that Jesus is going to return? Or death. I know we don't like to dwell on that one a lot, but it's, it's going to happen one of those two things. And if you have death, you are going to meet God. So really, it's kind of the same thing either way, right? But when was the last time that we really considered that? Because that is one of the motivations throughout Scripture. It's, hey, God loved me. I'm going to love Him in return. But it's also, hey, God loved me, and He gave me His Spirit not to just sit back and do nothing, but to sit back and be active and abiding in him and looking expectantly for his return. So are you living in the hope of Christ's coming? He's coming. And it may or may not unfold exactly as Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins said it would in, in the Left Behind series. If you ever read that, I know I'm kind of dating myself. It, it probably won't. There's the hint. But uh, he is coming. That part is reality. It's, it's going to happen. Okay? It is a truth just as, like any of the other truths in Scripture. Jesus is coming. 
Are you ready? Are you motivated? Can you have confidence in this coming or are you kind of like ashamed with the way you're living? You're like, man, I don't want them to come back and see me do this and this and this and like waste my life doing all these things that don't matter. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love for us 